I guess what I'm getting toward here as I'm listening to myself say this out loud is that it's not bad to be idealistic, but it's hypocritical if you aren't idealistic and willing to suffer to live out the consequences of those ideas. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. Cameron, um, compl- like I think there might be a simple end to this, but a complicated setup. I want to talk about what happens when you can't live within the ideals that you set up for yourself. Um, there are a whole number of ways in which we can get started in on this. Uh, some of the the craziest people that I've seen like go off the rails are those who got super religious and set a very tight parameter and set of boundaries around their lives that the box that they drew for the way that my dad would describe it is, is they drew a box so small that they themselves couldn't even fit in it. So you, mm. you have these structured ideas about the way that the world should be and you should be, but then you find that the world doesn't conform to your image or you don't even conform to the image you set up for yourself and chaos ensues. Um, another version of that that I saw this week um, was kind of the news out there about San Francisco had enacted a series of laws saying that they wouldn't as a city do business with 30 different states in the United States who didn't um, support or have live up to their LGBTQIA um, laws and and ideals. And so these 30 states, no official employee from the, the city of San Francisco could do business or travel to these states. And they as a couldn't buy anything that was manufactured in any of these states. And so surprise of all surprises, the price of doing anything (laughs) when you cut off over half of the states that supply things to your city skyrocketed. And then after three years of trying that, they recognized, oh, wait, our boycott isn't changing anything. It just made the price of everything that we're trying to do phenomenally more expensive. They ended up repilling and rolling that back in some categories saying, you know, if we're going to build uh, homeless shelters we have to have the material from some of these states that we earlier said we wouldn't, but we'll just look for suppliers within those states who will agree even if the state has. So it's this whole morass of how do you have a set of ideals, but then you can't live within them and then you have to fall back on it. And then one more just, and this is probably an even bigger example, is I know many of the people listening here have been following what's been going on for several months now with the protest of the farmers in Europe. Um all across a whole bunch of different states in the European bloc, uh, in the EU, who are saying, look, as a nation, you've you've given us these very restrictive environmental policies for our agricultural production. So you want us to put X amount of uh, land aside and cover crops. You want us to restrict our use of diesel fuel. You want us to not use certain herbicides and pesticides. And you're going to charge us heavier taxes on the products that we do have in order for us to raise a, quote, more environmentally friendly product. The problem with that is, is that the prices of that then go up to the degree that those nations just start importing the cheaper goods from other countries who don't have to produce things under that same set of guidelines. And so um, I think there's, there's a whole big ball of wax there on the European farmer protest. But one of the things that I think is a legitimate part of their protest is to say, why are you willing to impose demands on your own countrymen, and then just when the price of the product goes up because you're making it harder to produce the the product, then you're just outsourcing it to another country. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like you're not willing to pay the price of your own ideals if it makes things more expensive for you. And so I thought that would be, uh, those are just three that popped into my mind of examples of situations that I think 
people find themselves in when saying, yeah, we want this, but we don't want to pay for it. (laughs) Do you see that anywhere else in life? Or what are examples or things that pop into your mind when you're looking at that whole how to live when your ideals don't work out paradigm? Well, I think we're in some ways dealing with a substitute religion here. And that's probably not where you thought I was going to go, but nope. let me expound on that. Just, yep. <laughs> let me expound on that. <laughs> Predictability. For a not one of our strong suits. Go for it. No, no, no. Well, and this is not original to me, but look, you, you pull away, you, you tear up all of your Christian heritage as we've been doing here in the West for a long time. And so as we're, so you mentioned Europe and you mentioned America and one of our cities that's just fallen into ruin, San Francisco, which is very sad to see. And of course, San Francisco is one among several, you know, you can also, we can name Portland, we can talk about Seattle in a similar, you know, and of course, Detroit, Detroit is old news. It's still very sad, but we're in the process of pushing away all, all of the, the, the Christian ideals that shaped our nation. I'm not arguing that we were an explicitly Christian nation. I'm saying that we were shaped by a very distinctly Christian heritage. This is true in Europe as well. The secularism in Europe has been part, has happened before it did here, of course. Europe's much older. But when you do that, though, I mean, we are inherently spiritual creatures, and something has to fill that vacuum. It's just, we, we, it's not like you just clear it all away and it just stays empty. And so now we've talked at different times on this podcast, and certainly it's the talk of our culture, a kind of new sort of Pharisaic, you know, Pharisaical Puritanism, righteousness, Puritanism, right. We've talked before, this is a very prudish age, but the intense need to be seen as righteous and to have a set of very high ideals. And these are all, you know, and, and they are, and of course they're, they're structured around some very specific items these days. Sexual identity is a huge one, probably the biggest, but the, the environment is another, is another big one as well. I'm not saying care for the environment isn't important, but I'm saying that that's one of these major tenants. So, that's one way to explain behavior that is, <laughs> I think putting it lightly would, would, would be, oh, it's idealistic. It's all, you could also say it's, it's very foolish behavior. It's, it's wildly irrational. It's wildly irresponsible. I mean, talk about San Francisco. Is a, if there's one city that cannot afford to any, any more economic pressure, it's that city, right? And so then you have something like this. What on earth are people thinking? And so there's this distance on the one hand between the ideals and then the hard reality on the ground. But I do think there's also a spiritual impulse here. Hmm. And I think people Mm -hmm. are trying, they're trying to scratch that itch. And this is, this is one of those, those places where you see it. So the behavior that is very strange looking, I think we can make some sense of it when we look at the spiritual restlessness, but the, the sad fact is, Nathan, though, that so often this is very hypocritical in nature, too, because as as you've mentioned with your example of the farmers in, you know, in Europe, <laughs> when when those goods and services aren't, you know, aren't, aren't being rendered in the way that Europeans want, then, of course, then they just they outsource it and they're perfectly willing for other countries 
to, you know, and, you know, use those practices, just not over here. And so mm-hmm. meanwhile, the, you know, penalizing their own, their own laborers, their own workers. So this is, and so this is something that's happening in the States. This is something that's, in, that, that's happening in Europe. This is indicative of, of some of the major problems, the major meltdown that we're experiencing here in the West. And I think there's a, yeah, you have a, if those factors coming together of idealism, people well, who are me, removed. Let, yeah. Let me give you another yeah. good example on this. So let's talk about drilling for oil or natural gas. Right. You know, yes, so massive yeah. environmental. And so there's a situation where like the U S is fine. We have plenty of this. Um, but we don't want to drill in our national right. parks and wildlife reserves for it. So we'll just get Saudi Arabia to do it, who I'm sure has much better environmental protocols in play and does a much better job of stewarding the, the <laughs> sure, environment yeah. and caring about all the aquatic <laughs> life around where they're. Yeah. It, so on one hand, it's, mm-hmm. it's just kind of ridiculous, but there isn't a way where you can say, we want to have it both ways. We don't, we want to drive our cars and we don't want to disturb the caribou. And you yeah. can't quite have both. And so th- this is the, the, the challenge of our time. Um, I was, I was talking to some college age students we had over, over Christmas break, uh, a group I was, I was like, I will, my wife and I will feed you if you give us insight into your, into the world in which you inhabit. Um, and one of the observations they had was that <laughs> people don't know how to handle conflict or disagreements. Um, I remember even from my days working in college admissions where we slipped into the time frame where the majority of students coming in at freshmen had never shared a bedroom with another person. And so the idea of having a roommate and figuring out how to reconcile differences or what do you do when you can't get everything exactly to line up the way you want it to was a totally foreign concept. So I think there's a breakdown in our communication abilities, a breakdown in our understanding of the way that the world really works. But then this third one that you've added Mm -hmm. onto it, which I think is a fascinating route, is to say that there's a religious component to this of we're, we're now using the things that we so desperately clamp onto as a substitute religion. And then the fanaticism that comes through a false religion always leads to destruction. Um, that's part of what it means for it to be a right. false religion. So yeah, I'm, I'm game to go with your thought here. Yeah. And well, and I think I want to emphasize the, the distance part that goes along with idealism. Idealism is often removed from, I think the picture I get when I hear about idealism, when I hear the word idealism is one of, you know, think about the ivory tower. The picture there is of an academic blissfully removed from the day-to-day scenery of of people struggling in their lives. I think of a certain spot in upstate New York where both you and I have spoken, Nathan. This is mm-hmm. this is milk country. And I remember talking with one of the people there. He's talking so about you little have milk farm- production. That's not an acronym for anything. Actual milk. Yes, yes. These are milk farms. But all of the policies that they have to adopt, many of them highly arbitrary and many of them out of touch with the reality of life on a farm, are mandated by people in Manhattan. And I just think about sure. that. This is, this is upstate New York. These, I mean, these are the farmers. So that's a picture of that idealism that I have in mind. The people in Manhattan are not necessarily bad people, but do they, are they in touch with the realities of the farm that these farmers are? Well, no, they're necessarily not. They're too far removed, and their ideas are more theoretical than they are practical. And this is something that we see 
a lot of in the modern world because of that distance that's been imposed between those who are, you know, exist in corporate structures of leadership, be they, you know, corporate or political, and people who actually are on the ground and have to do the work. So mm-hmm. I think there's there's a there's that distance there as well. And I, yeah, just wanted to pipe up okay. on that one. So let me let me jump on the head of ideals for one more second and then turn the corner because I do have ideals that I think are realistic. And as Christians, we most certainly do. So mm-hmm. we'll get there. But um is it Steve Garber who wrote the book Visions of Vocation? I think there's a little syllogism in there that I've used a bunch of times in speaking at different student groups at different universities. And if I can pull, just think through this line. Um, so the first line is justice is an ideal. The second line is all ideals are illusionary and utopian. Therefore, justice is illusionary and utopian. Hmm. And so I'll, I'll often put that on the board and say, okay, walk with me through this. Um, and it gets really depressing really fast if you're not a Christian here, because you would say, yeah, justice is an ideal. And there's a lot of conversation around what how people are defining justice. It's a great, this whole thing just opens up so many good doors of conversation. So what is justice? It's an ideal. Yes, we all want it. That's good. Um, but we all kind of know that ideals are an illusion and are utopian. That's the part where I don't know now if everybody would go in the direction of saying that that is true. Like it, it used to be taken for granted that ideals were a bit utopian. You would say, yeah, shoot for the stars. Um, I always loved those like high school graduation shoot for the stars. And I always like wrote underneath them, aim for the stars. And even if you miss, you'll freeze to death immediately way before you get there. Um, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's like, let's think about what's actually being said here. Um, but as a Christian, I, I do believe justice is real, and I don't think it's just an ideal. I think it's embodied in something and, and is displayed and incarnated even um, in our world. And so the difference between a true and a false religion would be the degree to which our ideals can actually be made manifest in the world that we actually inhabit and are actually livable because they're actually true, because they actually align with the way in which things were created not just physically, but also within human relationships and human relationships, not just with other humans, but human relationships also with the divine. So when you're coming at it from that perspective, I am extremely idealistic. Um, I think that is the command that Christ has for us, uh, is to be idealistic about what God wants of us. I don't think Jesus would just be like, oh, here's some neat ideas, give them a try if they're convenient, and then I hope it all works out. I think he actually was calling us to it, except, so here's the kicker, is that the Christian ideals are extremely difficult and often require Mm -hmm. suffering. So I think that's the difference is you can have ideals. The question is, are you willing to pay for them? And and the ones that we started off talking about were like economic ideals of like, oh, I'm committed to only growing locally grown, organic, certified, vegan fertilizer, spinach delivered on a bicycle, um, that's going to be some expensive spinach. And you can do that. Um, mm-hmm. And somebody will grow that for you. But it's going to cost more. The, the same, and you just have to say, am I willing to pay for my ideal? And maybe you are in that category, and maybe you're not. But then when it comes to more important things, like our faith, you're not necessarily going to pay for them financially. I mean, maybe you will. Oftentimes there'll be things that you have. You're like, hey, this is a great idea, um, but I can't in good conscience make money off of this. So 
I'm going to set that business aside. Maybe it is that, or maybe you just have to suffer and say, here's what I believe to be true. And, um, I can't do anything different. I think there's a, a neat scene in the chosen where Jesus early in his ministry kind of gets hauled in before the, uh, Russian or the Roman, uh, governor of the area. And the guy's like, look, you're causing a little bit of disruption. Basically. Um, I need you to step down or things are going to get ugly for you. And Jesus just looks him straight in the face and he's like, I can't make you that promise. So it's just, mm. it's just a very matter of fact. Like I, I, I see clearly understand your perspective there. I have a different goal in life. I hear your threat. I'm willing to accept the consequences of it, but I have a different vision vision in life and I can't change that. So come what may I'm going to do this thing. So I guess what I'm, getting toward here as I'm listening to myself say this out loud is that it's not bad to be idealistic, but it's hypocritical if you aren't idealistic and willing to suffer to live out the consequences of those ideas. Yeah. That's, that's, that's about the best I can come up with there. Yes. I mean, and it, I think, yeah, do your ideals actually make contact with reality is, is a question that keeps popping up for me here as well, because yeah. So yeah. Are you willing to suffer for, for your ideals? And it, frankly, when we look at a lot of the behavior around us, or we look at a lot of these policies, we see that people are not willing to suffer or pay the price, you know, just because if you, you want to have a more holistic or humane way of, you know, getting food to people that won't slow down consumer demand. And though, so then just outsourcing happens or something like that. Yeah, you. So that's, I mean, that's just virtue, vir, virtue signaling. Once again, plain and simple. And so there's a cynical read on on some of this as well. There is an earnest desire for goodness that we see all around us as well. And that's what I. That's where the religious substitute theme comes into my mind a little bit because we're very concerned these days with what the good life is and how what mm-hmm. what a good life looks like and how we lead a good life. And that's. That's a good question to be asking, and that's a good pursuit. But unfortunately, right now, the major answer that we're getting, just as we look, you know, just when we look at our culture, is well, you must be you must be seen to be good. You see, you 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 know, your behavior needs to accord with cultural orthodoxy right now. So you know, you need to look like a good person, and of course, you can do that actually quite easily these days you can fall out of favor very easily as well if you say if you say or do the wrong thing but i mean you can you can style yourself as a very good person very easily it's you can put forward that image because paying for one's ideals is often something that happens behind the scenes it's not very glamorous not paying mm-hmm. for your ideals but that but publicly proclaiming them has never been easier well, so you have you have a lot of that going on yeah, that's that's interesting. You know, I've I've quoted before the thing that my eighth grade history teacher always used to run around saying, which is I forget Brown, who the poem was written by, of all that a man's reaches should exceed his grasp, or what's a heaven for? So there is a sense mm-hmm. in which we're always dreaming, which is a poetic way of saying we're always dreaming for something that's beyond our reach. But I I, I I'm not so sure anymore. Here's I don't know. We'll see how people just throw this out there and everybody chew on it as as you may. Um, I think there's a sense now in which people can very easily conceive what they think the good life is 
and a very high percentage of young people in our country today are confident that that concept of the good life is very much out of their reach. So you can look mm. at everything from the probability of having a stable marriage in the future, the probability of owning a house, the probability of having a steady job, mm -hmm. the probability of all of these things that were kind of considered to be standard elements of the American dream. Um, you look at mm -hmm. statistics around, you know, my age and younger, a very high percentage of the population in the United States assumes that they'll never own a house or own property. Um, a very high number of people mm -hmm. won't get married now. A very high number of people will bounce around from job to job. Uh, so the statistics are not in the favor of the person. who is, And so I think that is the, the heartbreaking element. It's it's almost worse if you don't have a vision that is a dream that isn't. It's almost better to not have a dream than have a dream that being crushed. And I think that's the mood in which we're living in these days of saying, here's what I think mm -hmm. is best. Here's what I think is ideal, but there's no way I'm ever going to get there. I can sympathize. I can see that. And, and I can see that as oh, a I sadness. That. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so I think, you know, there's a, there's a funny, and, and this is where it gets tricky generationally because you'll have maybe an older generation say, well, you know, these kids just aren't working hard enough. Um, you know, if they put in the, and you're like, oh yeah, let's talk about what you paid for your house 50 years ago. Mm -hmm, um, sure. or yeah, let's talk about, so there's, there has to be a, a recognition here that some of what, some of the apathy that we see is not apathy, it's hopelessness. And it's not a rejection of the ideals of a previous generation. It's just a disbelief that that's attainable for somebody who's 22 years old today. Now that's not universal. It's not across the board, but that is a serious component of kind of the emotional bleh that we're living in um here in the no it's first quarter of the 21st it's century. an accurate no it is and it's not just here in america that's that's the tone in britain for instance as well and i mean i've, I've heard from a number of different voices just the basic sent, sentiment look we just people just want a country that they can afford and just a you know just a, a basic the avail, you know, available to them, a sort of basic normal life. Yeah. Marriage and home, those kinds of things that were taken for granted and that were, you know, did ring with a lot more possibility than they, they do for many young people today. You've mentioned before, Nathan, the, the subject of the future coming up and how most people now dread the future. And it's, it's something mm -hmm. that's, that's really a source of anxiety and dread. Whereas, you know, not so long ago, people were generally pretty excited about the future, especially young people. And that's, to me, a very sad change right now, where the overwhelming amount of young people, many of whom I've, I've, I've talked with as well, don't have that sense of youthful optimism. It's fun sometimes to see. I mean, I, I, I love saying that youthful sense of optimism. I had it as well. And I remember Dallas Willard once saying, you know, the young the young have a lot of hope because they don't have a lot of, they don't have much else. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. that's actually not true of a lot of young people today, especially, you know, in, I mean, in, in Europe, I mean, in, in Britain, this is, there is that, there is a sort of a desolation right now, which, and I, I hate to say that, you know, that, that sounds very gloomy and it is gloomy. I think we can acknowledge that this is, this is a dark moment in some ways, but again, the hope of Christianity is an eschatological hope, and we would do well to remember that. But I, I just, we've, part of this is, this is an outworking of years and years of, 
distancing ourselves culturally from our greatest sources of nourishment. See, that's what, that really is what we've been doing. I mean, Oz Guinness has said for years, we're a cut flower society. You know, we've cut ourselves off from all of our roots. And I think we're, we're in a unique position now to appreciate just how much nourishment you gain from the Christian vision of life and flourishing. But now that, now that we've come to our place where the individual is exalted above all else and, you know, your freedom is seen as nothing more than, you know, the ability to have no constraints on your own whims and your own fancies and your own fantasies. Now we've come to that place. Now that we've desecrated marriage and made a mockery of that as a culture, here's where we are. Here's an outworking of that. Now marriage doesn't look, it doesn't ring with possibility or, or joy for people. And not, not to mention that, that it's, marriage is also, it's, it's a little kingdom of a little king and a little queen. This was, Peter Hitchens was just drawing attention to this. This was an argument made by D.H. Lawrence, of all people. But he was talking about marriage as a cornerstone of a civilization and a society. Now we've taken aim at all of those essential features and here is where we are. So I think part of part of what what has to happen and sadly and this is a is is that this is a day of reckoning where we have to look clearly at what has happened and look at the outworking of our actions and where they've brought us and take an honest assessment. There's a way forward, but the but the way forward has to be through facing reality, you know, mm-hmm. and that's not going to be easy. Well, okay, let's just so two things real quick. One is if you're on the older edge of our listenership here and you're wondering what's wrong with all the young people these days, just consider that, that maybe they're not rejecting, maybe they share the same vision of what the good is that you have, but they just think it's totally not accessible to them. And so it's the kids standing on the outside of the fence, looking through the fence at everybody else playing in the pool. And that's where some of their irritation comes from. So do with that what you will. But this idea of idealism, think about the types of things that Jesus says. So in, in a in a bone-weary world, Jesus shows up and says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Uh, mm. Awkward. I mean, that's, that's ex- extremely high. But here's what's different and interesting about the idea of idealism within Christianity. So Cameron lays out for us that it is an eschatological one, that there's a of a, a guarantee of a fulfillment in the future, but we don't want to misrepresent or undervalue, I think, the fact that it, we talk a lot about Jesus, but Jesus says that it's better that he goes because then he'll send the Holy Spirit who will guide, teach, comfort, convict, help glorify. And so there's a very real sense in what the Christian faith offers is not just an ideal, but also an, an, a will and a power to achieve it. And I think that's one of the unique features that's missing in a lot of the other idealism that you might say, save the planet, vote for this candidate. Um, that doesn't feel like a real, <laughs> this is how I get involved to solve this problem kind of thing. And so what I see being different within Christianity is a very, very high call to a very, very good thing that also offers very, very clear steps and spiritual help for that to become a reality. And so it's not only it's that God gives the the definition of good, but then also the will and the capability to accomplish that good. Both of those are gifts. Both the ideal and the ability to actualize that ideal are good gifts to us. They're part of the grace of God. 
and so that's an important thing for us. Um, and I think also for you who are business leaders or teachers or whatever else, that is fundamentally what you're trying to do is to say, here's the ideal, here's where we're going. And here's the steps for everybody else to fit, to fall in step here and figure out how to make this happen. Um, so come at, you know, I don't want us to end up saying, well, ideals are bad because clearly they're not. And you have to have goals and visions and dreams and a purpose. Um, but you can't just throw them out there and then get frustrated when nobody else can pull them off. We really have to follow the model of Jesus here of saying, here's what the goal is. And I will help you do this. You're not on your own. Yeah. I mean, I think looking to, to Christ as, as your, I mean, your main source of, of inspiration and hope. So, I mean, I think we're, we're in a day and age where what I would call everyday hope, which is important, everyday hope is in short supply. Everyday hope would just be, imagine the, the teacher who sees a bunch of students. Nathan, you come from a long line of educators. If you're a teacher and you're not a cynical person, then you're probably a very hopeful person. And you're able to look at some of the students and you're able to see the, you know, the one student who appears to be a total lost cause, but you see a little bit of potential in them. And on the basis of that potential, you pour into them. And that's a hopeful gesture. You have hope that they'll turn out well and do something that matters. <laughs> so everyday hope, it's important. We all have that. It gets us out of bed in the morning. Everyday hope is in short supply right now because there isn't a whole lot of payoff at this particular moment. So yeah. everyday hope, we need Christian hope. Now, Christian hope is every bit as practical, every bit as needed, but it is supernatural in nature because you're looking to help from the outside. And that outside source of help is the living God. So relying on him involves the recognition that, okay, we're in a mess right now. We're politically in a mess. We're economically in a mess. Our children need help and need guidance. Our culture is desperately perverse and messed up right now. And the planet, we're facing some ecological disasters. But guess what? It's okay. It wouldn't be okay if we had to save ourselves. It would not be okay if we had to fix it all. Because our track record there is not good. And we're living in a moment where it's impossible to ignore that track, that bad track record. We just can't People should be more depressed than they are if they're relying right. on our track record. And that's what, but I think that's where the hopelessness is coming in. I think ultimately now people on an intuitive level are sensing we really can't pull this off, can we? We really can't do it. Our best minds can't do this. The people in Washington can't do this. The, the European Union can't do this. What are we, so if they can't, what are we going to do? Well, you look to God. And with yeah. God, all things are possible. So nothing is nothing is hopeless. There's a lot of hopelessness around us, but that's because people have misplaced hope. You put your hope in God, you can recover healthy idealism. Well, okay. So let me tell you a funny story, and then on to finishing out that thought. There, um, one of the funniest things that I ever heard was listening to your mom, Cameron, tell me how when you were in middle school and you were transitioning from speaking German to English, that you would leave for school, and she's like, and I would just cry and think, is that boy ever going to master the English language? I don't know if he's going to be able to get it together. Um, so when you're talking about students who are <laughs> trying to figure it out and somebody invested in them, I, I got a good chuckle out of remembering that conversation with your mother, not being sure if you'd ever figure out how to speak English, which I think 
you've you've done well. You've done well. Um, but the other part of <laughs> the other part of this is that we also have to be careful and not hoping in Christianity for the wrong reasons. And I just want to bring this in here as a last minute thought in that let's think of some of the things that we said young people are, you know, upset about. Oh, I can't find a wife or I can't find a husband. Um, I'd like to be married, but I can't work that out. You know what? Jesus was single and elevated that. And there are people who say, oh, I would love to own property or I'd love to have a house. Jesus said, the son of man has no place to lay his head. I Just time and time again, some of the things that we think are our ideals are not actually things that Jesus promises us. And so that's one of the th- the difficulties yeah. is to recognize also, what is the thing that Christ actually promised? And then don't get upset with Christ if he doesn't deliver things that he didn't promise. So don't read your own ideals into the promises of Christ and then find him lacking for what he's not providing. Count what you have as a blessing. And if you do have many of these things, thank God for them and recognize them as the gift that they are. But also don't think that you can't be fully human if you're not uh, living up to the uh, historic American ideal of what it means to have a happy life. I think we want to look for the concept of fullness and abundant life that Christ offers and not uh, unnecessarily attach that to some form of uh, materialism from our time as well. So I don't know if we made any progress here or not. Maybe we're all just more depressed than when we started off, but I don't think so. I want to encourage everyone listening to dream big dreams, have high hopes that are founded in things that are actually worth being hopeful over, um, have high ideals and listen to the ones that the Lord is giving you, not the ones that you're finding on um, social media, and then to recognize the beauty of what's on offer to us um, through the proclamation and of God's good news in this world, that he has not left us as orphans, we're not alone, that the Holy Spirit is real, and that we do have an aid in achieving the things that God calls us to, who uh, is given to us from the same God who sets those high ideals. So, uh, Let's be compassionate to the people that we disagree with. Let's be educating to the people who need to connect some dots of the ways that the world really works. But then let's also be prayerful and asking the Lord to shape and form in us the wish and the will and the desire and the ability to do the things that he's calling us to day to day. And I think in that we'll find an idealism that not only is attainable, but is actually pleasurable when properly pursued. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, the podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.